Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Happy Saturday, everyone. Happy Saturday. Welcome to All the Things. I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, and this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, and helping us out on the show, on every social media thing we do, and in life in general, is the one and only Bob Button Pusher, Button Pusher Bontrager. That almost went really badly it, wrong. It really, it almost really did. It really did. Yes. There, there you go. All and right. in our chat, our chat boxes. Because we are live. We are live. That's right. We, we are. It's Saturday. We're here. I'm going to put this down because it's bothering me. All right. I'm just going to lift it up again so I can see. Because <laughs> we'll need to do it, y'all. Um, okay. So we're live. So join the chat box. Uh, I think that our moderator tonight is the one and only Alicia Moss. But Laura Hartley is there too. So welcome. Hello. Hello. And hello to Natalie. Yes. Talk to her. Hey, on the Natalie. Yes. Talk to her on the phone yesterday. yesterday had an awesome conversation. Susanna's so here. Yeah. Yes. Glad yes, to yes. see everyone. Candy is here. Gwenda. Rihanna's here. Kat's here. Oh, Alyssa says this sounds like a depressing topic. Well, it just might be. It just might be. But no, it, it'll be a helpful topic. Now, Krista, I'm just going to bring it out to the family since she put it out there. Krista does not like when my I laptop... I don't like that at show, all. And I don't care. That's This is where we are in our life, people. This is beautiful. Look at all that glitter. It's so distracting. Well, you know... Everyone, let's take a poll. She's the one who's let's talking. Let's take a Yo. poll in the chat. It's so... But look it. Not only that, but it also matches my phone. That's not my you issue. You guys. You guys. My issue is it being on screen. That's well, you my know, issue. I figure her <laughs> issue ain't my issue. So Obviously. there we go. Yes. All right. Okay. Support the show. Yes. Please support our show and all of our shenanigans. <laughs> you guys like the show, share the show. Some of the best ways that you can help to support what we're doing on all yep. the things. Send it to your friends, send it to your pastors, your small group. Get the word out so people know that we are having real conversations that are Christ-centered, Bible-focused on relevant cultural topics. Um, so yes, yeah. please share the show. And if you haven't liked the show, please give the show a like or a subscribe on YouTube. Okay, and the show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Theology Mom Podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. Truth has no color. Yes. Now you were going to ask me what I have been up to today, but see, I'm going to cut you off at the past and I'm going to ask you, what have you been up to today? What have I been up to today? Yeah. Well, today I was uh, filming you and Kevin. uh, Thank you, Keita. Doing um, Off Code. We were recording the April episodes for the new Off Code podcast. Topics were Black Church. Yes. And black vote yes y'all it's, it's gonna be so good i am so excited about these two episodes that are gonna drop in april um the first one's gonna drop on april 10th and just keep an eye out for it it's on the black church and i absolutely cannot wait for y'all to to hear it and there's a surprise special guest yes 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 are you gonna ask me 
Oh, I'm going to ask you something yeah. now? You're gonna, okay. You, I thought you were going to ask me the same question. Okay. So, money, <laughs> what have you been up to today? So, I recorded two episodes of Off Code. We already covered that. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know what? I have, okay. Have you guys ever, like, had the conversation of being busy all the time? So, I'm in, like, this text group with um, three other women. And one of the things that I noticed... Um, is is from my conversation it's like i'm always busy i'm always busy like i don't want busy to become part of my identity or how i define myself and i noticed that when someone um i think somebody put a question in thing and i was like yeah on a scale of like one to ten i'm like at 99 like i'm just busy i'm always going and that's true i am but i don't want it to become like how i define myself like mm. the busy bee you know what i mean i think that there's something to taking a pause like even a sabbath and I think we do that on Sundays, but even on Sundays, I tend to kind of throw in some work here and there. So today when we got home from doing off code, I cleaned my room. I cleaned oh, my bathroom. I, took I was a nap. like, I, you sure did take a nap. God bless you. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do something. I really enjoy cleaning. I was like, I'm going to do something that I really enjoy. I did like three loads of laundry. I folded clothes. I like deep cleans around the toilet and the bathtub. Y'all I was in my happy place. I can't even lie. Candy and says so, this is clearly yes. not planned. This no, is, no, this is not a scripted no, show. No, this isn't a scripted show. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whole upstairs smelling like bleach. All yes. right. <laughs> okay. So now we can boy. Oh, I was going to comment on that. Okay. About right. that whole being busy thing. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I'm wondering... Sometimes if the nature of the busyness depends on the season of life that you're in. Like when I was a stay-at-home mom and my kids were young and growing up, I didn't have so many outside activities mm -hmm. because so much of my busyness focused on whatever they were doing mm. and trying to help them grow up and do homeschooling and all of that. But now that my kids are grown and out of the house, I'm kind of noticing like being busy for me right now in this season is just a full court press for the kingdom, mm -hmm. you know, of like feeling like, you know, the times are urgent, um, needing to do what we can, um, because of the times that we're in. I don't know. So to me, that's kind of how I think about busyness now. Maybe I, I guess, know. um, I definitely, I don't like to be bored. Mm. I don't like to just kind of sit around like unless it's being idle. Yeah. Like I can, I will intentionally plan like a, a day where I'm just going to, this is going to be kind of a me day. Not yeah. just like a, I'm not going to do a bunch of stuff, I guess would be a better way to phrase it kind of day. Um, but I definitely, I like to travel. I like to be out. I like to, you know, work and yeah. get things done. I like, I like, I love a to-do list. And I can you check love, it off. You love a good to-do list. Ooh, let me tick it off. Yes, yes. You want to talk about <laughs> ways that make me happy, things that make me happy, a, a good, solid to-do list. Yes. Yeah. And then being able to tick it off or even like doing laundry. And like, I just, I have to have things kind of in order. And when things are not in order, that's how you know when I'm probably feeling a little chaotic and oh. overwhelmed. Cause when my like when my bedroom's a mess, or when I when I don't make my bed in the morning, you should check in on me emotionally, people. So oh. like I, I I generally make my bed every morning. I like yeah. my room to be clean before we go on a trip. I have to make sure my room is clean, my bathroom. Cause I can't come home to no mess. The devil is a lie. <laughs> mm -mm. Okay. Anyway. All right. 
<clears throat> boy, my cough is bad right now. Um, I do want to mention before we, we do the setup for our interview tonight that our book club group is starting this week Yes, for our parents, mm-hmm. our, our parent support group. So I just want to give one, uh, uh, one more mention. We had our friend Shirley Johns on a couple of weeks ago uh, with some great wisdom yeah. for parents of children who are struggling in their faith or have yeah. deconstructed. She had some wonderful Sweet things to woman. say. But we're doing a book club about her book, yes. From Heartbroken, Heartbroken to, to Hopeful. Hopeful. Yes. So if people want to get in on that, then they they have kids, adult kids, teenagers who aren't walking with the Lord, and you know, you're struggling with that. A couple resources I want to make sure that people know about. One is our Facebook support group yes. for parents. Um, now, I know not everybody's on Facebook, but if you are on Facebook, um, you can join the Facebook group. Just make sure, please, 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 please make sure that you answer the questions before you try to join the group. We have so many people who just click, yeah, I want to join the group, but they don't answer the questions. You must answer the questions or else I will delete your request. So if you've tried to join in the past, try again, make sure you answer the questions. But I also want to let people know about a second opportunity, and that is the virtual book group that will be starting later this week um, on Shirley John's book from Heartbroken to Hopeful. So people can get all that information. There's a post on Facebook and Instagram about it, of how to get connected to that. But we're going to be sponsoring that group. Now, if you're not on Facebook, but you want to join the book group, you can still do it. Just email us and I'll, I'll get you in the group because it's it. You don't have to have Facebook in order to be a part of the book. club. They can email info at Center for Biblical Unity dot com. Yeah. yeah. And that's info at Center for Biblical Unity dot com. And um, just let us know that you want to be in the book group, but you're not on social media. Yeah. OK. So tonight on the show. Yes. I have been wanting to do this topic for a while since at least I moved in here. <laughs> Probably since November. Okay, so I had reached out to our guest and we had started, you know, a conversation back and forth on email about inflation because I just remember from high school economics, and I know you didn't have economics in high school, but Mm -hmm. I had one semester of economics in high school. And um, I just remember learning all these really valuable things about basic economics and inflation is something that it's in the news, but I don't think it's something that a lot of people understand. And if we're going to talk about justice issues, if we're going to talk about systems, which you and I are open to talking about systems of injustice, we don't think systems of injustice are endemic everywhere. All the time. All the time. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that we think, Maybe we need to yeah. zoom in on this a little bit. Yeah, it's not an impossibility to have yeah. a wicked system yeah. when you have people who um, don't, you know, sus- subscribe to our worldview. You yeah. have people where the the word says that you know the hearts of man are wicked. Yeah. Like so, wicked hearts can create wicked systems, and they can collude together yeah. and that sort of thing. So, I want to have I've wanted to have a conversation about inflation because I think this is a justice issue that nobody is talking about. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the reality that we are almost approaching six six and a half dollars a gallon for gas in our state. It's like when and you pull up to the pump, you got to make life choices. Yeah, 
I didn't know food, food, that it would be like that. But food prices are skyrocketing. Yes. And, um, you know, even though in our state, you know, the the you know, minimum wage is going up, you know, there's a lot of people just trying to grind out a living um, but that's for part, minimum wage. That could be part of the problem. Exactly. And so all of these things are kind of interconnected. I, I have want a question to, for you. Okay, sure. What do you, why do you consider inflation a justice issue? Well, we're going to get into that. Okay. That's what the whole show is going to be right, about. I'm just making sure. And so we're going to have to kind of, we're going to, we're going to go to college tonight. Like there might be some things, this, this is not the episode of like, Hey, I don't have to think about this. You know, all of the points are going to be fun and, and, and everything. This is not, the, I love our friend, Christina Karamo. When she comes on, it's a lot of fun for an hour chopping it up. This is not that episode, but we are going to try to break it down because people need to understand some things that are happening and how they are affecting the people around us and mm-hmm. in our churches and in our communities, the people who are on fixed incomes, the people who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. We need to understand some things yeah. and we need to pull that curtain back god's given us all a, a mind to to think with if we're created in his image it, you know we all can figure some things out in our life and and so what we're going to do we reached out to our friend um jeff degner and at um cornerstone university to come on and help us out with this conversation yeah. about inflation i mean y'all gonna have to have a pencil and a paper <laughs> i'm not playing because he gonna bring he gonna bring all the facts all yeah. the receipts all the information that you, there's going to be new words. I can guarantee you. But I want to be ready. I want us to understand how yes. we got here. And I want to look at this chart really quick that I, I got. It was on Twitter this week on Blomberg, on the Blomberg feed. It says inflation will mean that the average U.S. household has to spend an extra $5,200 this year compared to last, last year. So if, if you're, if you're at a $30,000 a year income and your expenses on food and gas and other necessities mm-hmm. and rent goes up $5,000, mm-hmm. that's going to have a significant impact yeah. on people with fixed incomes. And, um, you know, people like you and I, we might be able to adjust to paying 5 to $7 a gallon for, for milk. The devil, that's a lie. I cannot adjust. <laughs> You speak for yourself. But, Wait, nah. but this, uh-uh. this, this I'm is about some... to drink some, I don't know, <laughs> something else, water. Okay. I can adjust. She ain't shit in my pocket. She don't know. Uh-uh. All right. So let's get our friend Jeff on here again. Welcome back. Hey. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate your work. And I can definitely empathize with the uh, person in the comments who said, ah, this does not look like uh, a real fun topic, but Oh boy, uh, I share your pain. I share your pain. Yes, and you know what? It's like no, this might not be a fun topic, but as Christians, we do hard things. Like we rise to the occasion, and we have to be able to have these conversations and stay informed so that we can talk to other people. Yeah, like we we can't just be hiding. And I don't want to. I don't want to talk about my seven dollar gas. <laughs> no, we need to talk about that. So well, and there's there's power in in knowing the truth and speaking mm-hmm. the truth. And yeah. uh, the Lord has something for us in that. And so that's what we want to be about tonight. Hey Amen. Come on, preach. So, Jeff, uh, for those that may not remember you, uh, you were on our show just about this time last mm-hmm. year. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and knowledge in economics. 
Well, my undergraduate, I have a dual major from Western Michigan University, and that was in history and economics. I sort of joke with my friends that that makes me a doubly dismal person. A lot of ugly stuff in history, and we're going to look at something in economics tonight that is not too pleasant of a subject, but that is my undergraduate background. And then when I picked up my master's in economics, I had the the privilege, I'll say, of exploring price increases in the hospital and healthcare industry. A lot of inflation there, a lot of price increases there to say the least. And so currently, as you said, I'm teaching at Cornerstone University and I am graciously receiving some help to finish up my PhD from Cornerstone. And that PhD is occurring through a program in France, actually, And I'm under the mentorship of Dr. Guido Hulsman, and he is regarded by a lot of folks as one of the leading what we call monetary economists in the world. And uh, he spent a lot of time and effort getting through my thick skull, uh, the importance of understanding what inflation really is, where it really starts. And so that's my dissertation is actually on the root causes of inflation and how it impacts the family institution. And I'm specifically zeroing in on the 20th century in the U.S. and what's happened to family systems throughout the course of the century. And uh, there are some pretty startling realities that have to do with the creation of excess money supply. And so I was really blessed a couple of weeks ago and and honored and humbled that I'd written up a paper on inflation and its impact on the family and uh, submitted it to the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. And at their annual research conference a couple of weekends ago, I uh, received the first place prize among the graduate students. And so it's really humbling. And, uh, but uh, I've worked pretty hard on this topic of inflation. And so I just want to bring that truth to y'all and, and see how we can speak to that as believers. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I mean, this is such an important topic. There are, you know, I think when we look out, you know, widely um, or broadly, we have interactions with people all the time who are being impacted by this. You were talking about family systems and family structures. Mm -hmm. I'm a family of one, (laughs) but still, this is hugely impactful on me. And as someone who, you know, doesn't have kids, when I go to the grocery store, I wonder, man, like, what happens to the single mom or what happens to the, you know, com- not complete family, but the, the two parent family who may, you know, only have one income or someone's been laid off. How do, how are they making it? If I'm looking at prices and giving side eye, you know, I can really, I can, I, my heart really sympathizes or empathizes with people who have to make some really tough decisions at the gas pump or at, in the grocery store or, you know, in any of these other, you know, markets at, at the clothing store, if my kid needs clothes or something like that. So, yeah, well, I mean, because like right now, just to give a real practical is we're paying close to five to seven dollars a gallon for milk. Yeah. And that's just a basic staple. So I guess just starting there, Jeff, like something really 
basic like milk. Mm-hmm. I, like what in the world is happening with food prices as we're as we're you know just trying to start this conversation. Yeah, when I think about prices for milk in California, my wife and family, we were able to travel to California a couple of weeks back and visited with my uh, my old friend uh, Pastor Dave Moorhead. We were hanging out in Shafter, California. And of course that's in the central Valley. And one way or another, we got on the topic of what was happening with agriculture in the central Valley and how water distribution is really happening at sort of a political level. Well, and people should know that in the central Valley in California is used to be like the breadbasket of this section of the country. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, driving up I-5 through California, farm after farm, hours and hours of farms. And now when you go through there, it's desolate. It, there, There is not a lot of ha- happening in the farms. So go ahead. I just want to paint that picture for the East Coasters that might yeah. not know the importance of that. It is fairly stark and sad to see. So when we start thinking about price increases, I think it's always a good place to start to just think about the basics of supply and demand. Uh, Now, like you said, this is where we're going to school here. So hang with me. But I did a little research on dairy farms in the Central Valley. And essentially, because water supplies are being diverted to other parts of the state, dairy farmers are having to sell their herds or switch their production from dairy over to almonds and things that you know aren't producing milk. All right. And so in California, y'all are seeing just a flat line or even a decrease in the supply available for dairy products on a local level. Right. So most folks, this is not too complex of an idea, but when you've got a reduced supply of anything, this is going to create a tendency for prices on that good to rise. All right. So decreased supply, we would expect to see a little bit of a price increase, but not that much. Okay. So when that happens, let's consider what's happening on the demand side of the equation. Well, I pulled up some data about the state of California and back in 2020, Incomes on average increased. Now, you ladies might not have felt this, but the numbers say increased by about $8,000 per household. Well, where'd that money come from? Did all of a sudden uh, we have some kind of boom in productivity or wages? What's going on here? So we have that chart that you gave us, the median household income in California. I want to explain it for our podcast audience. So in California, in the last decade or so, income has gone up by $30,000. So the question is, is why? Why is that dramatic of an increase? Right. And that really gets to some of the root causes of what's going on here. So when we have increased income, whatever the source, you got increased bidding power. And sellers know this. And so prices increase accordingly. Uh, We see the same thing happening at the college level. When, for example, uh, students walk in the door with the capacity to have a lot of government loans, 
Well, this isn't just Cornerstone. This is across the country. Colleges know that you've got more cash to wave around when you walk in the door. And so we see escalating prices in uh, college tuition. It's just another example of where we have what's called demand-side inflation or demand-side price increases. So I hope that makes sense, but I'd love to clarify if there would be an easier, better way to say it. Sure. So as prices go up, it's because there's increased money supply. That's, that's kind of what I hear you saying. That's what we're getting at. And okay. as we talk about that, that gets us to the main culprit that most folks have no awareness of at all. So then the question becomes is what happens to the people at the lower end of the income scale that aren't seeing those increased wages, but prices are still going up. And then it's they're left thinking, well, where's my piece of the of the pie, if you will? Sure. Well, what you're touching on, and again, this is where you got to have your pencil and paper ready. Uh this is what economists call the Cantillon effect. Uh, that's if you're spelling on your notebook, it's C-A-N-T-I-L-L-O-N. The Cantillon effect has been um, observed when we've got increased money supply coming from our financial system. And those people who are the first recipients of this new money creation they're usually pretty well connected. They usually have pretty quick and easy access to new credit. And they're not taking out a couple thousand bucks to get a note on a used car. These are institutions, individuals who are taking out loans in the millions and sometimes billions to bid on, let's say, vast tracts of real estate or in a new factory, in an industry that the government has just promised a boatload of money to. And these folks, these well-connected individuals, wind up purchasing assets, property, businesses. And now let's see what happens down the road from that. Well, if you're a middle-class person, you're one of the later recipients of some of this new money, or maybe you're just working hard and you are advancing in your wages. You're in that sort of middle group of Americans. You hear that, oh, there's some new company. There's some sort of real estate investment that's taken off by 15 or 20% this last year. Maybe I should get into that game. Maybe I should go ahead and invest in that particular stock that, the well-connected have already started to make gains on, right? So you jump in as a middle-class person and you see your net worth go up a little bit. Well, as the prices for all these things, real estate, um, farm prices, this creates a situation where the last folks to receive income increases, a little bit of a wage bump, they are now looking to become home buyers. They're now looking to purchase a car. They're now looking to send their kid to school. And all of these prices have been bid up ahead of time. And it makes it increasingly difficult for those in the lower 
middle class and especially the poor to have any hope of affording these things. And I'm here to tell you that that process is not an accident. A lot of times I hear folks say, gosh, this, this system that we're looking at is broken. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this system led by what's called the Federal Reserve is working exactly as it's designed to work to benefit a few at the expense of the rest. And I want us to get into that a a little bit more because we're kind of at the beginning here, but I want people to understand that capitalism is often looked at as being the scapegoat of what this problem is. Mm -hmm. But what Jeff is describing is not actually free markets at work. This is called crony capitalism. This is a, a deep form of corruption that causes these sorts of things. And so we want to continue to try to drill in here. And that's good because you've kind of given us the big picture of, of some of where we're going to go. Because what happens is that the things are happening behind the scenes that I don't think the regular person who's just doing the day-to-day middle-class grind in their job, they don't understand all of these things that are happening behind the curtain, mm-hmm. that things are, things are going exactly the way that they're designed to go. Um, they, just, they just can't figure out why am I paying almost $7 for milk in the state of California and what has gone dreadfully wrong here. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, no, I was going to go ahead, finish. No, I'm going to switch gears. So go ahead. All right. Well, I think what Chris is hitting on is like in what you just said is, you know, things are working the way that they're supposed to work. And yet it also feels like something has gone dreadful. My tongue. Something feels like it's gone dreadfully wrong, Um, which makes me think about 2020 and stimulus checks that have come and, you know, continue to come and things like that. And then when, you know, prices go up on my social media feeds anyway, I see people asking for more stimulus checks. I'm like, no, wait, let's not, let's not do that. That's not actually a good idea. But can you help us understand what things like the PPP loan, the stimulus checks and all of that do to our monetary value? Yeah, that, that last part of your question, our monetary value really Confer- like your intuition is right on the money. That's an economics joke. But <laughs> okay. So anyway, uh, the economists we're like the we're the dad jokes of the social sciences. It's just <laughs> it's just the way it is. So, but yes, we got to be concerned here about the value of money against or compared to goods and services. So again, I think this gallon of milk example is really good. Because you get a PPP loan, you get a stimulus check, and (laughs) compound this with government response to COVID-19, and you're like, I got to get my food now. Well, this, this new money you've got in your hand, you're a pretty capable bidder until the money dries out, right? And so there is this essential problem that the overall value of money is falling. Now, I got to say that economists historically, before the 20th century or so, use the word inflation to describe, uh, and here I'm going to get a little technical, but it 
was used to describe money created in excess of savings accounts. Uh, I'll keep it right there, okay? Money in excess of savings accounts. So it used to be the case that you think of your typical bank and you got people who bring savings in and the bankers will go ahead and use those funds and lend them out, okay? That's how loans happen. Well, that's not the way it works anymore. What we have under the Federal Reserve System created in 1913 is an institution that basically has a printing press and can, instead of local savers creating loans, they've got a printing press to create loans. And when they divvy this money out to the U.S. government, or large commercial banks, which shall remain nameless, but they're the big boys. Um, this creates that Cantillon effect that I talked about a little bit earlier. Again, those contractors who are well-connected with the government, they get their hands on the new money first. Those big businesses that are well-connected to investment bankers at the, the big banks, they get their hands on the money first. And we head down the road of those Cantillon effects. And so this is, uh, this is, as you said, sort of what's happening behind the curtain. But uh, depending on uh, your news sources or what you read every day, you can, you can follow this. Uh, it, it, they're not hiding it in, in a certain sense. But again, the average person in the public is not really aware of these goings on. So I want people to really understand this because when the government says it's going to give you a stimulus check mm -hmm. or when, you know, in California, our governor at the beginning of COVID, he, I was watching the news conferences. He was literally announcing a new social program practically every day and, and giving away free money, free services. But I want, I want people to understand is that when we're printing, when our government is printing all this money, and we think that this money is going into our bank accounts, it's actually deflating the value of our money. And that's not healthy for our long term. So it's it's a little bit like, like all we're going to do is eat junk food. It feels really good in the moment, mm -hmm. but after a while, our health is in trouble. But if all we do is focus on the short term of, hey, I want you know, these stimulus checks, we're not looking at the long game of the impact. And so then the government just keeps giving us this, these little snacks and morsels, yep. but it's to our long-term detriment. You cannot just randomly print money, an endless supply of money. And where are we at with the supply of money? Like, Give us a picture of how much it's increased in the last mm -hmm. few years. Well, I, I don't know if uh, I, I send along a little graph. We saw the income change in California, but I also have sent along, and I don't know if uh, Bob's able to grab that thing. There we that go. Is what we call exponential growth. So we're looking for our podcast listeners. We're looking at a graph here of income from 
you know, like, I don't know, maybe the 60s up through today. Yeah. And what we see is like a slow, gradual line. And then all of a sudden, a very sudden line from 2010 to 2020, but really yeah. steep from 2020 forward. Yeah. And let me go ahead and clarify for, uh, for the viewers here. This is what economists call M3. Just think of it as overall money supply. All right. Now, this tracks very nicely with a growth in income for the richest 1%. Uh, in fact, I, I've got an undergraduate student, shout out to Dennis if you're watching, uh, but he did a project tracking the growth of overall money supply and the net worth of the top 1%. And he ran his data. And what it showed is that for every $1 trillion, um, excuse me, for every $1 billion, Right when you're talking billions and trillions, what's the difference, right? Just, these are massive numbers, hard to grasp. But uh, for every $1 billion in new money creation from the financial system, there is $2 billion added to the net worth of the top 1%. Okay. Wow. Now, remember what I said earlier about the first recipients bidding on assets and then everybody else follows along? Okay, that is how one billion can draw in sort of enthusiasm from people in the middle class who maybe have some savings. They throw it at the investments of the one percent. Now, the what top one percent? We're measuring their net worth. That that's what makes them rich is the the magnetism of uh, of the growth in their investments that everybody else looks around and says, oh, look at that stock over there. Let's throw more money at it, thus increasing the net worth of the top 1%. Now, I should say that among the middle classes, if you are able to wisely financially plan and direct your savings and investments towards these growth positions, Yes, you're going to wind up better off, but not everybody does that. Not everybody is um, getting that kind of wise financial advice. And so you get your income, you maybe get a 2% raise every year, and we just continue to spend it on consumption goods rather than, frankly, doing what the top 1%, 10% do, which is to direct their income towards assets that gain value over time and it and in our last few years at a really high rate of growth. So I know that's getting a little bit into the weeds, but this theme of early recipients versus the later uh, truly trickle down effect right. is what we're seeing here. Now, when you're talking about early recipients, I want to make sure that people understand what this is, because these are the people that are well-connected to their local government, their state government, their federal government, that they can get contracts. They can get, you know, the work orders. And sometimes these people get these over, you know, years and decades and because they're well connected. So the 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 money that flows in first would go to these these well connected people. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of questionable things about how are these bids coming in and how are they vetted and and is it really fair? And can new contractors get fair bidding competition? And so 
when you're talking about all this new money, this is one example of how it goes to certain groups first and is what I call crony capitalism. This is, again, not true capitalism, not true free markets. It's engineered Mm -hmm. through, for lack of a very simple term, kind of a bribery system, a system of favoritism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not the whole enchilada, but that's just to give one example of of what Jeffrey's talking about that to put that out there. And just to plug a quick book for your, uh, for our viewers here, a good friend of mine, Patrick Newman wrote a book called cronyism and it goes right to that theme, but he tracks it all the way back to the 1600s in North America and unfolds that sort of year by year. He names names and describes what cronyism looked like in the 1600s in North America. And as uh, uh, the wisdom literature says, there is no new thing under the sun. Yeah. So when we're thinking about these stimulus checks, what we want to know is, yeah, that scratches our itch for the moment. But that's probably not the healthiest thing for us in the in the long run. And as we're discipling our kids, we want them to understand some of these basics because politicians will appeal to them for immediate felt needs. But what we have to understand is the bigger picture and just randomly printing money with nothing behind it. There's no gold standard behind it. There's it in. You know, I, I I would love to do a whole show on just as what is money? Like, how did we get to a place where we exchange dollar bills and electronic digits in our, our bank account that that's somehow a value uh, for goods and services? But that's just my own fascination with these things. But I guess what then we're in now is our country is in is racking up so much debt mm-hmm. because we're printing all this money. And I feel like nobody wants to talk about it because now we've been operating in this massive debt for so long. Kind of the the thought is, well, maybe having debt doesn't actually matter. You know, maybe it maybe it's not really that important on the macro government scale. Okay, well, I'm going to ask the the non economic question. Like, I'm not sure. an economics person. If you are printing the money, who are you in debt to? Like, it seems like, does the money even mean anything at that point? Like, I can go upstairs and draw me some, you know, something, some, you know, an old face on some, you know, green paper. It's like, we talk about all of this debt. Now, I can understand if we borrow from another country or things like that, being in debt to those people. But then, but if I'm upstairs just with me and my little printer. Like, what, <laughs> or if the, you're in a government official with a printer, yeah. If I'm a if I'm a government official with a printer, and I here I am passing this off, you know, and saying, "Well, this is good." Is it good? And who are we in debt? Am I in debt to myself? Like when I take money out of my my little box under my bed, and then I put a little IOU slip in it? Like I don't know. <laughs> like Monique, you are you are you are hitting on the real core question. So there are some economists who will say, "Oh." government debt, don't worry about it because we owe it to ourselves. That's a common expression of folks who say, really, there's nothing to worry about when it comes to government debt. Well, the main type of 
debt instrument that governments use is, I'll use the U.S. example, is what's called a U.S. Treasury security. Okay, so the money is owed to whoever holds these pieces of paper called securities. Uh, and there's a few different kinds. There's what's called a treasury bill, treasury notes, a few other things. Not, I'm not going to get too technical here, but the money's owed to the bondholders. Well, wouldn't you guess it that some of the biggest bondholders are the already very, very wealthy. They buy, they buy large amounts of bonds because a bond is a guaranteed payment. Like these securities are a guaranteed payment sometime in the future. Now, I know these numbers are going to sound crazy to most folks, but if I buy a U.S. Treasury bill in, in the amount of $5 million and I can get a 1.5% return on that in a few months, well, that, that's $750,000 coming back at me, guaranteed, okay? So bondholders are the people to whom this money is owed. And there are people in the general public. Uh, there are other foreign governments, other foreign individuals, but those are your bondholders, okay? Now, remember what I said earlier? about sort of that trickle down, what we call Cantillon effect, what winds up happening to the middle class is that they look around at rising prices and you can start to say, well, I got to beat that. I've got to put my money in a risky investment. Now you might not get that money back. That money might go to zero. You might not get any kind of gain on that, but if you're that middle-class person and you got 7% inflation, you, uh, I know I should not, as a believer, use this word lightly, but I'm going to use it. You are a fool if you put your money as a middle-class person into a bond that gets you 1.5% when inflation is increasing at 7.5%. So who are the only people that are looking to get into these bonds. In other words, who does the federal government owe the money to in the end? The already wealthy. So that's the system that's at work. And well, it's working for a few. And then at the same time, while they're kind of waiting for those bonds to come into maturity, there's also this simultaneous process of prices for goods and services being bid up right. and and then that i think creates a system for the people at the bottom mm -hmm. where they're continually they're again they're just doing their day-to-day -day life they're just trying to to support their families make a living and they don't realize that all of this money manipulation is happening at this top level and people the rich really do get richer through crony capitalism and it does create a system of injustice because regular people don't have this can't even 
get to the same level of participation. But I think that's on that's on one hand, like that's looking at the the I would say end user, the consumer. But it also happens. I would I would have to imagine that this happens to the mom and pop shop or just the person who, you know, has a little store or a kiosk in the mall because now the goods are going up. And I would assume that people aren't buying the way that they were because things are inflated priced, like inflated pricing. So now this store is going to be forced to go out of business because they can't, you know, or lay people off or, you know, whatever. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, right? Because again, I'll I'll use some things, that, uh, some terms that you're going to want to jot down. But mom and pop stores, they are they're bidding on. Uh, let's say you got a local restaurant, okay? They're bidding on the same milk prices. They're bidding on the same wheat prices that have been bid up through these processes that we've described, and you see an ever escalating amount of costs that they've got to deal with. And so it's no wonder that wage increases for their employees are maybe a little bit slow in, uh, in developing because look, (laughs) when you go to buy a gallon of milk from a wholesaler, um, you're not going to negotiate the price and it's either take it or leave it today. Well, if you need to keep operating, you got to keep up with those uh, those prices on the cost side. And you're, you know, your single mom, your your um, young person comes in asking for a raise, and, and and it's not out of, especially in these cases that I'm describing, it's not a case of being Scrooge McDuck. It's the reality that these other costs are rapidly accelerating day by day. Well. Uh, even even the most sort of uh, aggressive employee who's looking for a pay raise, they're not going to come in every three months. They might come in six months. You know, you come in for your annual review at the end of the year, talking about a pay raise. Meanwhile, the price of milk's going up every day, and so this is a challenge to keep people employed in those smaller uh, or medium sized enterprises. Yeah. And so, Monique, you absolutely hit it on the head. And now, as you said earlier the the siren call of increasing minimum wages added on top of that okay you're already paying increased prices on these resources and now the government's going to step in and force you to pay more for uh for the employees and it's tough for some of those small places even to stay open and uh, they got to adjust resources and staffing and all of that uh, in response to this sort of situation. And so uh, I, I'm very animated about this because this truly is a justice issue. When, when we live in an inflationary world, like the one we're describing, um, take a big box retailer. Okay. They benefit by the inflation. Okay. They have stock buybacks. They, you know, their, their employees are, uh, are vested in buying stock in that company and their properties are bid up, their net worth goes up, but not so much for the small mom mom and pop. And, and this is what, uh, as we look throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, how unequal weights and measures, partiality in 
in dealings, whether it's in a justice system or an economic system, is uh, is an abomination before God. And that's, uh, uh, I feel like that's where we've got to be aiming our, our prophetic speech as Christians when it comes to this issue. Well, that's the perfect segue to the next thing we want to get yeah. into is kind of like looking at this biblically. I just want to give a quick example. You and I enjoy a certain Mediterranean food restaurant here mm-hmm. in town. And it just so happens that the owner of that works in the office next door to us mm-hmm. in our new office building. It just so happened that way. Yeah. Like we've, we've enjoyed this restaurant for a while. Just happened to find out that our, um, neighbor in our new office building is the co-owner in that with his father and they're Christians. They're immigrants from Syria and they're a Christian family and they have three or four restaurants here locally of their Mediterranean food, fast casual kind of place. And um, we went in their restaurant recently and noticed that their prices had Had gone, had really shot up. But this is an everyday example of, of like, you know, they're not big time buyers, mm-hmm. you know, of the food. They're just trying to feed their customers, pay their employees and stay in business, mm-hmm. w- given all the California labor regulations. Yeah. And now their food is so expensive. Mm-hmm. It's almost prohibitive to go there, which has this domino effect of inflation as a result of all this corruption, then mom and pop who are giving jobs Mm -hmm. to regular people, providing a valuable um, good for us as customers, in order for them to stay in business, they have to keep raising their prices. But if you go to, you know, a local like big box chain restaurant where they're buying in massive quantities, they can afford to stave off or slow down some mm-hmm. of those some of those price increases but even at those places the prices have gone up yeah. right. and um but they have more of a cushion to fall back on than the mom and pop restaurant and it you know it's this corruption has very real impact to small business owners mm-hmm. and and that is a backbone traditionally of our economy. And yeah. it seems like through COVID, so many things are shifting to big box stores, big chain restaurants, because they had special exemptions during COVID. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at least in our area and a lot of the smaller places had to stay shut down. Yes. And it all just seems so corrupt. Mm-hmm. And my question in the back of my mind that I keep asking Monique about is, you know, you hear all of the the social justice people, the the big Eva voices. Where are they on this issue? Where where are they on calling out inflation and crony capitalism? Now I hear them talking about capitalism in general as being an expression of whiteness, which to me just shows me they don't really understand very much of about economics. But I'm wondering where are the social justice people? You know the and I'm going back to Jeffrey's earlier comment of this is where our prophetic voice ought to yes. be is because this is a corrupt system that af- directly affects the middle to, to lower income 
people. And so, Jeffrey, I'm going to throw it to you is is when we think about inflation, this is not just a a worldly concern that Christians shouldn't care about. Um, So give us some of your thoughts from a from a Christian perspective. Well, how much time we got? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I had some things in mind, but as you're talking about this prophetic voice, I, I thought of the prophet Micah, and most folks are well aware of Micah chapter six and uh, the question that God asks the heart of man. You know, what does God desire? He wants you to walk humbly and and to love mercy, right? But the context of Micah chapter six is in the context of what are called the statutes of Omri, right? Uh, the law is established by Omri and by the wicked King Ahab. And God uh, pronounces judgment over the nation because of these laws. Well, what are these laws? Well, in understanding economics and understanding what we've been talking about here tonight, Starting in chapter nine of Micah six. Oh, uh, yeah. It, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Bob's putting it up there on the screen. So oh, great. He's, he's so gonna... I, I have a different version, maybe. That's okay. Uh, so yeah. Verse nine. Yeah. Eight, nine. Um, listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. He, the rock, oh, the nine. one who appointed it. Uh, I'm st- now <laughs> this is incredible language. In verse nine, so you're in chapter nine of of uh, my sorry, I'm in uh, chapter six. Okay, just jump down to verse nine there. Okay, great. Uh, Depending on the version you're reading, God asks a rhetorical question. He says, "How can I forgive you for this list of crimes?" Like we we think of God as you know, He's going to He's going to forgive in every case. Well. Actually, sometimes there's judgment, and this is what he's laying out here. So in verse 9, I'll read my version. I've got the legacy standard version. He says, is there a wicked man in your house along with the treasures, that's economic, the treasures of wickedness from the short measure, which is accursed? Can I purify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? Those three phrases are at the heart, at the center of what economists call debasement, right? Use the word earlier, um, uh, Krista, of the devaluing of currency. That's, that's verse 9 and 10 in Micah chapter 6. And God is saying he's going to bring judgment on this nation because they've practiced it, but they've also put it into law, the statutes of Omri. Well, that happened in our nation in 1913. On the evening of December 23rd, 1913, about 11 o'clock at night. Now, when Congress and uh, people like this are signing bills, Basically, on Christmas Eve, in the middle of the night, you can know for sure nothing good's happening. And, well, uh, I th- I think that you're to this. Yeah, and I want to really bring this out because when we're talking about polluting our money and devaluing our money value, when when scriptures talk about fighting for the cause of the poor, we get this question a lot: is what is the cause of the poor that 
that God judges his people about. Well, one of those things that the cause of the poor, that the righteous are supposed to fight is against bribery, bribery of judges, the prevention of a case being um, properly held in a court of law that the evidence is judged fairly and impartially. This is the cause of the poor of why God judges uh, his people. But another part of that is this unequal weights and measures. And this part of this is the money issue. So it's, we can't just fall into this caricature of saying, well, it's just the greedy and they're just gouging mm-hmm. the poor. Like, okay, there's some truth to that. But, but if that's all we've got to say about it, we are engaging in, in just a caricature of the problem. And we are not looking deeply and reflecting carefully about what scripture says on justice. And I want us to be very specific. I do not like conversations about justice, which are a bunch of just generalizations. That's not helpful. And so when we look at these specific laws of Omri and and this type of unjust scales, part of this is in a court of law, but part of this is economics. And it fits right into this whole crony capitalism issue. It absolutely is in the markets Um, and this partiality, this favoritism, which is inherent in a system like the one we have with the Federal Reserve, uh, by its very nature, by its operation, it will produce these injustices. And it is, uh, it's a stink before the Lord. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Unequal weights and measures are called an abomination. Like that's the kind of sin where you look at God and say, Hey, watch me do this wickedness. It is an affront in the truest sense. And, and who are the individuals? Again, we talk about sort of these cronies, but actually in Psalm chapter two, Psalm chapter two talks about the rulers of the earth. Now, when I read language like the rulers of the earth, I think about what Paul says about those entities, those institutions, individuals that are essentially captive to the evil one. They are the principalities, the rulers of this world, and and they're run by the evil one. But these individuals, they speak in a way to God's people And in Psalm chapter two, it talks about throwing off the restraints, throwing off the restraints of God's people, of God's way, of God's order. And God does have a righteous order for market operations, and they are centered in in even-handed weights and measures. One really important thing to note. Maybe we'll, in the future, do a talk on the, the true nature of money. But in the early days, when people talked about money, they talked about it in terms of weights. That's super important to remember. Uh, in the early days of the U.S., you talked about a one-ounce gold piece getting you $20 of goods and services in the market. But it was related to the weight. Right. And over time, the U.S. Uh, system began to produce from governing officials 
began to produce debased coins. Remember in the Old Testament, the, the use of the word dross? Dross is an inferior metal that's inserted into a coin uh, so that it takes the weight of gold in the marketplace, but in fact is maybe only 50% gold or 40% gold. It's filled with garbage, and it is essentially uh, the system that, again, we have in our current day and age. And it's, uh, you know, again, for our, our listener who said this is going to be a depressing one, look, this, this, we can either sit in our depression or rise up in righteous indignation. But that's our choice. And like the prophets of old, when Christians bring this forward, we're probably going to need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God that, you know what, the world's probably not going to listen to us on this one yeah, mm -hmm. because their rulers benefit by it. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, speak the message, declare that this is wicked and, and speak to the alternatives. And, and the Lord will bless, uh, will bless faithful servants in this way. So, you know, if we got, parents and students listening like send your kids on up to cornerstone university in grand rapids michigan like we're gonna we're gonna talk about this and this is uh this is a central justice issue wow we're gonna go out to some questions before um, we do that i just want to yeah. read jeff's comment because we had some some notes that he oh, made okay. for us mm -hmm. and there's one comment he makes in the notes here that i just think is so good and i want to read it he says i i the Part of his argument, his contention, is that every single central bank that has ever existed is a legalized abomination that violates God's prohibition on unequal weights, balances, and measures. Wow. And I, I think that's important because it is in our country, um, because of the act that Jeff was talking about earlier in 1913, it's embedded into our laws. Mm -hmm. So we have this abomination that our country, our government is co-signing on, and then we're all slaves to it. And that I think is very unfortunate, but I want us to at least understand these things or begin to understand some of these concepts through a Christian framework. Yeah, so, all right, good. let's go to some questions. All right. We're going to go to Kat's question. Um, she says, sorry, if this is a dumb question, there are no dumb questions. Girl, did you hear my question earlier? Um, do you know if the new, Los Angeles Guaranteed Income Program is related to printing extra money, or is it a social service service like general relief? Oh, well, real good question. And one thing to that I want to put forward is that this is a complicated one. I'm going to try and boil it down. Understand that no government anywhere at any time has ever actually produced anything. All they can do is either tax people or borrow, right? Now, if it's the case that in the state of California, government, uh, Governor Newsom is going to tax the people of California in order to fund that project, I don't think he's going to get much traction on that. Uh, maybe he will, right? Uh, you got people in Hollywood saying, yeah, tax me. Well, why don't you just give your money, uh, right? Uh, so it can be raised through taxes. I doubt that's going to happen. So what the state of California is going to have to do is borrow, right? 
And again, this borrowing process means that you've got this, this bondholder system and the folks who uh, get early, uh, get in early on that game and lend to the state of California, they're going to make out just fine. Now, let's talk about the recipients of that minimum basic income. Once again, this is going to be, uh, let's say it's the lower 30% of income earners. All they're doing is walking into the grocery store and waving around extra cash due to this, uh, this program. Now, again, does the fault lie with the grocery store owner or the mom and pop? No, markets respond when there is value thrown at a good or service. And those values are communicated upwards through what we call the stages of production. And it leads to higher bids on dairy products. It eventually leads to higher bids on produce, on um, on meat and the things that you might buy in a grocery store as a person who would be a recipient, right? So if the idea is that this universal basic income is going to stay ahead of inflation, it actually can't. It can't stay ahead of inflation because of the systems that um, uh, we've described here. So And we did talk a little bit about universal basic income last time when Jeff was here. So Kat, you might find that conversation informative as well. And looking at, we talked some about some of the theological implications of all of that. I want to do a couple more quick questions here. Um, And you may not know the answer to this, Jeff, but Laura is asking um, what is the role that cryptocurrency is playing in all of this conversation? Excellent question. So cryptocurrency is uh, largely a technological response from people who understand that this is what's happening in the broader Federal Reserve System. What they are hoping to do and take the case of Bitcoin is to have a fixed supply a permanently fixed supply. And this is where this these mining operations come into play. They are quote unquote mining uh, using digital tools really to extract the limited supply. But part of the promise and appeal of Bitcoin is that it is a fixed supply. And over time, the hope is that you would be able to exchange for goods and services using Bitcoin. And there are some companies who do this, but all you need to do is take a look at Bitcoin's rise in price over time. It is, it's comparable to understanding the loss of the value of the dollar against a single Bitcoin. That, that's a good way to think about it. And so, uh, yes, we have a lot of uh, young people in tech, savvy people bidding on Bitcoin. So is perhaps its price in relationship to the dollar a little bit higher than it otherwise would be? Perhaps, perhaps it is. But it's very much a reflection of the devaluing of the dollar through money supply increases, that true sense of inflation uh, against something like Bitcoin, which is fixed in its supply. 
as we start to wrap up, our last question here says, um, is it even possible to turn this ship around? And I think that really takes, that's a perfect segue to like, how do we respond? Yeah. How do, how do we go forward as and, Christians? As Christians. Yeah. 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 So how do we turn this ship around? Well, uh, a return to a fixed supply of currency would be a great place to go. Uh, unfortunately, I do believe that our Federal Reserve, well, I know that they have already run studies on a central bank digital currency. So abandon oh, wow. sort of the dollar in the sense of greenbacks and regular checking accounts. And they are going to create some kind of blockchain, but they make no commitment to a fixed supply, uh, which is not a surprise given what we understand about inflationary systems. So what's our response as Christians? Um, I've already talked about the prophetic voice, and I think speak to this, when you do hear those discussions about, oh, you know, this is just a grocery store owner being greedy. I don't think the Lord wants us to be scapegoating. Like this is not wise, helpful, and it creates animosity, right? Uh, At a fleshly level, right? I see that person and they become my enemy. This is very much a tactic of the evil one. Our our fight is against principalities and the rulers of this dark world, and they have convinced the public that money printing is a good idea. Um, and so we are waging a spiritual battle against those kinds of spirits that would entice or tempt uh, individuals to engage in wholesale unequal weights and measures. Now, what about the real practical thing of your personal finances? Okay. Uh, one of the things that the wealthiest people in the country and the world do is they invest in real estate. And before we got on the show, we were talking between Monique, Krista, and I about, about Kevin's work. Uh, Kevin's doing awesome work with Monique on uh, Off Code, right? You heard about that. So it sounded to me like he was engaging in real estate investments and, and this sort of thing. Well, most poor people are saying, wait, real estate investment? Are you kidding me? Um, But there is one instrument that I would encourage you to wisely look at. I'm not a financial advisor, okay? But get with wise people on this. An entry point, even for the poor, to, to try and outpace inflation is with what's called a real estate investment trust, an REIT. It's just one option, okay? Okay. Uh, cryptos were mentioned as another one. All right. There are ways in which uh, we've got to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, right? We're called to this. And so by having a wise recognition of the inflationary world that we're in, you may be able to engage it in such a way that you don't see your family's finances crushed or become incapable of assisting people in your own church who, as we said at the top, were uh, on fixed incomes, retirees, social security people who only get one bump in uh, a so-called inflation adjustment at the end Mm -hmm. of the year. Well, what about the prior 11 months? So can we find ways to be wise and charitable towards those folks within the body who, who we know 
are in those sorts of dire circumstances. And so I feel like that's part of our call as well. As, um, because you mentioned real estate investment trusts, REITs, um, I'm sure someone like me just now is going to Google that and try and find more information about that. Are there sites that you would recommend and say, hey, look, this is a really good site to either teach you more or to you know, dip your finger if you so felt the call? Yeah, for sure. Um, on this broad topic, I would direct you to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. That's the Mises Institute. They have a ton of free books. All right. You can order some if you're like me. I'm kind of a kind of a book horse, so I get stuff in print, but nonetheless, fantastic free resources. And a couple, uh, one book especially is entitled The Ethics of Money Production. Now, I'm plugging that because I love that book, but it also happens to be written by my PhD supervisor. So I think I get extra credit on that one. But it, but it does touch on the moral implications of money systems. And so, Dr. Holzman, that's uh, truly a classic in understanding um, what we call monetary policy, right? The uh, importance of money supply. Uh, a couple other resources from that site would be a short book called What Has Government Done to Our Money? Uh, another one called Honest Money by Gary North. And those are going to give you that big picture on understanding the monetary system. And they're, they're invaluable resources. Now, now I, Gary I North's book students, is... They, um, uh, they read these. These are assigned readings. Not all of them, but a couple of those. Now, Gary North's book is, I want to make sure people know, is kind of a Christian perspective on money. And and mm-hmm. North is putting out, you know, his, some thoughts on that. And I would love to see more conversations in in that space. But North has done a lot of writing on, on that issue. And I just want to say, like, thank you, Jeff, for yes. being such doing the hard work of integration um, between the Christian worldview and economics. There are so many people in Christian higher ed that are experts in their field, but they haven't always done a lot on the Christian worldview side of things. And I just really appreciate the fact that you're willing to come on here and, and run, you know, both sides of that game. And, you know, that you're, you've dug into that and we're cheering you on, uh, as you finish up your def- your dissertation defense later this year and, um, you know, just keep going in the good work that you're doing there at Cornerstone. For me, like the takeaways from this conversation is um, keeping an eye on the Federal Reserve. It's mm-hmm. sort of acting as like an unelected fourth branch of the government yeah. with no checks and balances. Like that, that to me is a big takeaway. I think another one is just having an eye toward the people in my life that are on, you know, the working poor, the fixed incomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then thinking about, I'm going to, we're just going to keep beating this drum of churches. Please consider offering financial literacy classes. Yes. Get a vision. Yeah. Get a vision to help people understand these things. You know, a get out of debt program is a great start, Mm -hmm. but also having you know, bigger conversations about how basic economics works, Mm -hmm. supply and demand, the importance of, of voting um, for free markets. Mm -hmm. 
And because that can actually begin to lift people out of poverty. This sort of crony capitalism and corruption should never be confused with, right. with yeah. real free markets. That, that would be um, a straw man type of mm -hmm. thing. And I think my other takeaway is just thinking about what can we do, those of us who are at the higher levels of income, to help create wealth or people at the at at the lower levels like like in Kevin's case what he's doing is buying an apartment building and trying to rehab it for low income people mm -hmm. that's like what he sees as a way to service his community yeah. but getting creative in our thinking uh, for people that are at the higher end of you know the income scale what can i do as a christian not just with handouts but what can I do to create education and opportunity for the people in my church and in my community? So I don't know. Do you have any other takeaways? I think mine was going to be the along the same lines of, you know, how are we, and when I say we, I mean the church, Christians, creating um, spaces where people can learn about economics, where people can understand that they part you know that, that they are participating as well in a system and though their choices also have impact you know asking for more stimulus checks has an impact um and so you know how do we encourage people to participate with money and wealth from a biblical position and also how do we encourage people to get educated on what's happening in their local governments and in their national governments so that they can vote from a, an educated position against things like bribery um, that impact their their community yeah thank you so much jeff for coming and hanging out with us tonight yes we appreciate it thank you for having me and i hope that wasn't too uh, discouraging but hey Again, the Lord's called us to to use that prophetic voice, and um, as you said, to be a blessing to those who are around us that may be on the bottom side of this. Uh, there are ways to to escape by God's grace. Yeah, I guess you can see it as discouraging, or you can see it as being equipped. Yeah, and empowered. You know, yeah, equipped and empowered. You know, it. it I think it might be discouraging. I don't know what fell. It might be discouraging when you know you're not equipped and empowered, and we want to equip and empower people to be able to combat, you know, things that are happening in our nation yeah, and in our local communities. Yeah. You bet. So again, parents, send your students on up to Cornerstone University. <laughs> There's your plug. Yeah. There it you is. Help them do that. Oh, I can plug it three, four times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thank you so much for right. hanging out with us tonight. Take care. God bless. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, I learned a lot. And yes. and we still have so much farther to go. We know so little about yes. money and all of that, and yet it impacts our everyday lives. So all right, we're going to hear from our friends at Impact 360, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to look at the right camera um, for uh, one more little topic, and then we will wrap up. All right, and we're going to be back at Impact 360 in July. Yes, July. Looking forward. I think, what are we speaking at, the summer camp? Immersion. I don't know what that is. Is there that the summer camp? Yes. Okay. So we appreciate our partnership with Impact 360. Go check out their programs. They have one week, two week, and a nine-month nine month gap, gap year program. program and a master's program. Mm -hmm. So go check out what they are doing. It's awesome worldview training uh, for the next 
generation. Okay, I wanted to wrap the show tonight uh, highlighting a blog post that I did this week. Yes. Uh, it's called, Should Every, Every Church Be Multi-Ethnic? Answers to Three Critical Questions. And I had some good feedback about it. Um, kind of answering the three most common questions that we see kind of come up mm-hmm. time and time again. Should every church be multi-ethnic? So I would uh, want people to go check it out, see what you think. Because often when we, ask, when we are on calls with pastors, we ask them this question, should every church be multi-ethnic? Their quick and unqualified answer is yes. Because BLM Revelation seven. Oh, I don't know. I was like, we get a lot of we get a lot <laughs> yeah. of different answers. I don't know. Revelation um, seven. Well, yeah, Revelation seven, and you know, every tribe and tongue, and you know, all of these things. And so, I think it's important to to thread through the conversation. Is the church not already multi ethnic? When we look yeah. at the the global church, and you know, are we is is the mandate to be a multi-ethnic church, truly a mandate to every church. I mean, when we're looking at, you know, just the American context, or is that a mandate and a requirement just for the white church, like white evangelicalism, which these terms are beginning to really work my nerve, but you know, (laughs) um, yeah, I just, I think that the blog is, is really good. It'll get people to start thinking and answering some of the questions that many people, um, many people have and are wondering about. Yeah, another question I tackle is, is there something defective about my church mm-hmm. if it's monoethnic or monocultural? Uh, trying to help people think through that question a little bit. You know, like, why are we so worried about monoethnic or majority white churches? Do we have the same requirements for black churches or a Korean speaking church mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. You know, let's just think this all the way through. Yes. And understand that, you know, there might be things that you haven't considered. There might be things we haven't considered, right. you know? Um, but I, I think that there's a lot of conversation and I'm really glad you did this piece because there's a lot of conversation on the multi-ethnic church and the pressure that's being put on to some people, People, some churches, some ethnicities within the body of Christ. And when we talk about equal weights and measures and not extending partiality, well, that's an area where I see that there is not equal weights and measures, that yeah. there is this partial conversation happening within the body of Christ of what it means to be multi-ethnic and who or is somehow, right or wrong in that conversation. And somehow that being multi-ethnic is better than yeah. being monocultural. Mm-hmm. Like, Think of the burden that that puts on a pastor in rural Wyoming. Yeah, because like, I'm not going there in, in the cold. You no. know, it's, it's like cold. as if their church is less than yeah. or less interesting than mm-hmm. or some somehow yeah. defective. And as you and I travel the country, one of the things that we're learning is how incredibly culturally diverse groups can be, even with the same skin color. Yeah. You know, and we enjoy going to different places and trying to study the culture what's it what's it like here and you know it's it's not just one thing it's and it's pressure on i'll just say it it can be pressure on like white pastors and things like that and white parishioners and i'm church goers but it's also pressure on the black people and the minorities because now here i am in church walking in for the first time it's like ooh, (laughs) oh y'all see she came and it's like can i just be your sister in christ like can i not be a part of the 
the gosh, what is it? It's like a a plot. You know, you coming back next week? <laughs> like, <laughs> I live in California. Well, you can you know zoom in. <laughs> I'm like you know we we get into these conversations and we make more of it almost because in a lot of ways we're imbibing what the culture yeah. is telling us we must do as opposed to what scripture commands us to do. Yeah. The third question that I tackle in the article is, uh, should we intentionally recruit leaders in a church who are minorities? Cause sometimes we get people writing into the ministry mm-hmm. and say like, well, we have all white leadership. Is that bad? Is that wrong? Do we need to find a black person or a Hispanic person to get on the elder team so I try to walk yeah. people through like how to think that through mm-hmm. when that would be appropriate or when it may not be necessary. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Elisa uh, has a comment here. She says she lives in uh, Maine. Alyssa. 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 Yeah. yeah. Just saying lots of ethnicities would have to move here <laughs> for, for a multi-ethnic church to be an option. And girl, you in Maine. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. So... Anyways, it uh, it's a great uh, little piece that I've worked on for a couple of months. So I hope you'll check it out and send me your feedback about it. And that's how I always see blog posts is like, it's sort of an experiment. Put it out there, see what happens, see what people think. Sometimes people send in great feedback. Oh, yeah, I haven't thought of that. You know, that's, yeah. that's good. And then it sparks me to write more, think more. So I was, Linda said it was a great article. I always look at it as a, as a conversation. So. Awesome. All right, friends. All right. Thank you. Uh, Monique will be in Bend, Oregon next week, speaking at a youth apologetics conference. Yes. And uh, so we will be dark next week. So we will see you in two weeks. But I will be uh, here for the family meeting on Thursday. So yes, tune into that. To check out the family meeting this Thursday. And off code will drop a week from tomorrow. So excited for y'all to hear the this Black one. Church. Yes. All right, you guys. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.